Hey guys, I'm really, really glad you're joining us uh, this weekend. And if I've never met you, I'm Dan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here and love the fact that you're tuning in. Uh, had a chance to hear from some of you. And uh, thank you, some of you that have responded email and sent back some correspondence. And so I love the fact we can come into your home, uh, wherever you're watching this at. I want to say thank you to a lot of you uh, that make this possible. Thank you for your generosity and your investment and what's going on here. And I just want to say thank you. One of the exciting things we have going on this weekend is just some baptisms. And so you're part of that. Thank you for investing in that, making that possible so that the gospel gets traction. I want to tell you uh, this, really, really cool, that next week Pastor Aiden and I are going to begin a conversation and that conversation that we're going to have simply is going to be titled Culture, Clichés, and the Story of God. And we're simply going to be taking a look at culture and some of the stories that we kind of embrace in culture and the clichés that kind of codify uh, what we believe. And then we're going to say, hey, how does that kind of compare with the story of God? And maybe the story of God's more beautiful and even drastic and real and true than we ever thought. And so we're going to say, hey, how does all that play out? How's that smash together? I hope you'll tune in, invite others to kind of jump along in that journey. I think it's going to be a very, very important conversation. What we need to do today, though, is you need to get your Bibles, go to James, uh, lay that in your lap, get a piece of paper, you need to wrap up the conversation we're in, let's talk wisdom. Been having this conversation, I'm gonna wrap it up today, gonna to get practical today. The conversation has revolved around a question. Question James asked the people he's writing to, but he asked it of you and he asked it of me. Here's the question, verse 13, chapter three, James. He says, who is wise in understanding among you? He's asking them, quite frankly, he's asking you. He's like, who's wise and who's understanding among you watching this today? Now, here's what he knows before you raise your hand, before you're too quick to answer that. This is all by way of review. He says, before you raise your hand, you got to understand that there's two kinds of wisdom. There's this earthly wisdom, he says. This earthly wisdom, people who say, I'm wise. Like, look at my IQ, look at my SAT score, right? Look at the degrees on the wall. Uh, the people of the world would say, I'm wise. Look at all my opinions, all the things that I know, right? And what he was saying is that there's this earthly wisdom and it's driven by a selfishness, a, an envy. And he would even say that its origins are satanic. That, that's what James is saying. And he's saying this earthly wisdom is a wisdom that leads to disruption and chaos. He's saying this earthly wisdom leads to frustration and it leads to fractured relationships. It leads to anger and verbal sparring. Uh, he'd say this earthly wisdom leads to polarization and tribalism. Uh, it, it leads to prejudice and favoritism, rich getting richer and the poor's needs being ignored. He would say that this kind of earthly wisdom, it leads to unresolved hurt and unconfessed sin. This kind of earthly, earthly wisdom leads to a cultural Christianity that would declare a belief in God that's not demonstrated in the day-to-day -day life. That's what he's saying. He's like, this, this is earthly wisdom. Can we just pause for a minute? By the way, and he's not simply talking to the culture. He's talking to people who would say, I'm part of the church. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. <laughs> he's saying, who's wise and understanding? Can we just say that what he saw then that we see now, that's, that's what makes him say there's this other wisdom, right? Like, like there's earthly wisdom. I'm wise, look at all I know. But there's this wisdom from above. And he's saying the way you see that is it shows up 
in this beautiful life that impacts relationships. If you want to know if you're wise, look at your relationships. Because ultimately, when you condense it down, we said wisdom is walking with God. You want to be wise, walk with the wise. There's no one wiser than God. So that means this, wisdom is less of me and more of Jesus. The more I walk with God, less of me, more of Jesus happens. That's what I think wisdom boils down to. And, and James kind of says this, verse 17, he says that wisdom, that wisdom from above, from heaven, is first of all pure and it's peace-loving. It's not stirring drama, looking for a fight. It's considerate. Uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I want to place myself in your shoes. It's submissive. I'm willing to respond to authority. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's forgiving and it's serving and it's impartial and it's sincere. What you see is what you get and there's no duplicity. James is contrasting earthly wisdom with a wisdom from above and he's saying they're drastically different. But here's what's interesting for the sake of today. We gotta take a little detour because he's not the first to do that. Did you know that? He's not. In fact, I would suggest that James in his letter of James is very highly influenced by somebody who happened to be his half-brother, and that's Jesus. And when you look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus, you see that James isn't the first one to compare and contrast these two wisdoms. In fact, keep your finger in James and then flip your Bible back to Matthew. Go to chapter 7. I want to show you this. Keep your finger in James 3. We're coming back there. But Matthew chapter 7, there's this interesting story curious if you've ever heard it before. Therefore, Jesus says, he's at the end of a sermon, sermon on the, you guessed it, mount, right? Chapters five through seven. At the end of that sermon, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, the sermon I just preached, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice, like a foolish man, built his house on the sand. Rain came down, the streams rose up, winds blew and beat against the house. And here's how he ends the sermon. It fell with a great crash. <laughs> you ever heard that story before? Raise your hand if you have this. I can see. <laughs> you ever heard it? Now, some of you grew up going to church, right? You ever have a teacher do it with flannel graph? It's kind of a fun flannel graph. I remember that. If you have no idea what flannel graph is, Google it, man. It's like, cool, it ought to come back, right? Before computers and all that. Uh, there was even this song, right? Wise man built his house on the rock. Rains came down, floods came up. I won't sing it. You can there in your house, right? Uh, it's a very familiar, if you, you grew up being taught the Bible as a kid, this is one of those stories they would have taught you. And I think that's awesome. But the truth is, if you grew up hearing this story as a kid, it might be so familiar that it's lost its power and its punch. Because there's something very sobering and serious, and Jesus decides to end his sermon this way. That if you're not careful, it'd be so familiar to you, it'd be so cute to you, that you might miss what he's getting at. In this little story, Jesus is talking about, write this down somewhere, the foundation of wisdom. And he's using this illustration. Two men are building a house. Do, do you see this? Two men are building a house, and these guys, they have so much in common. They both have a dream. They both have an idea. They want to build a house. Uh, if I'm reading this right, they both go to the same church. <laughs> they both heard the same sermon. I mean, they have so much in common. 
Uh, they both weather the same storm. If I'm reading this right, they both are in the same storm. They have so much alike, but there is something that is drastically different. And the difference is what? You know, I mean, it's, it's what? The foundation. It's the foundation. You see, building a house was a metaphor. And the metaphor was a metaphor or a picture for building your life. It also was a metaphor for building a community or a ministry. You know, the household of faith, the church is called, or, or the house of Israel. So it's a metaphor for building your life or building a community. And Jesus tells this story. Here's why Jesus is telling this story, right? He wants you, you, to find yourself in this story. Because what Jesus wants you to read the story and, and, and know is this, his whole purpose in telling the story is this, you are either the wise man or you are the foolish man. Because every last one of us is building our life on a foundation. Well, how in the world do I build as a wise man on the right foundation? Well, look at what he says. He says, he starts by saying this, here's how it begins. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. What words is he talking about? Let's just do a brief, quick flyover. What words? Jesus just preached a sermon. Check it out. Chapter 5, uh, chapter 6, chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. His first recorded sermon. Jesus just preached it. In essence, what Jesus came and said was this. He says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to teach things that are going to seem upside down to you. And the reason they're going to seem upside down to you is this, is because we live in an upside down world. And so when Jesus came, he came and he would teach things that seemed upside down because we're so used to living in an upside down world. And he says, actually, what I'm teaching you, what I'm telling you is right side up. He was a right side up king with a right side up message about a right side up kingdom. And he brought it into an upside down world. And so when Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine, what words would he have been talking about specifically? Well, he said things like this. He, he in his sermon said this, imagine, go check me on this. He says, hey, listen, uh, yeah, don't murder. But it's not just about don't murder. He says, I don't want you to be angry with each other. I don't want you to be looking for a fight. I want you to be peacemakers, he says. I want you to settle your conflicts. I want you to be willing to forgive. Uh, in, in this sermon, specifically what he said was this. He says, yeah, don't commit adultery, but it's way more than that. Like, I don't want you just not to get in bed with another woman. I want your eyes to be committed to purity and your heart devoted. That's what he says. He says way more than that. Uh, he says in this sermon, he says, in this eye-for-eye eye world we live in, when someone comes to you and slaps you, he has the audacity to say, slaps you on the left cheek, turn and give him the opportunity to do it to your right cheek as well. If they come to you and they want your shirt, he says, why don't you offer them your coat? He had the audacity to say that, that it's not just about loving people in your life who are easy to love, who think like you think, vote like you vote, and are just somebody who's always nice to you. And he says, I want you to love your, he has the audacity to say, love your enemies. And then he goes a step further. He says, if that's not enough, I want you to pray for people, but not just your grandma and your kids. And I want you to pray for those who are absolute toads in your life. And they make it hard. 
They're antagonists. But he goes further and he says, in our world that is easily impressed with outward religious devotion and we clap for people, applaud, he says what really matters is the practice of the quiet inner devotion to God that is sincere, not duplicitous. He said in his sermon, in a world that seeks first my kingdom, he says, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. He says this, in a world that is quick to judge others, I want you to be quick to evaluate your own heart and motives before God. He says, whoever hears these words, they weren't easy words. They're not easy words. Whoever hears these words, they seem upside down. Like what? Because that's not the way we do things in our culture. And he's coming into this upside down world, the right side of mess. He says, whoever hears these words. And then he has the audacity to say this, doesn't just hear them, but he says, puts them into practice. That person is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, puts them into practice, does them, that, that somehow they act upon them. Uh, here's what I want you to write down. Write this down somewhere. A wise person, Jesus teaches this, builds their life on the foundation of practicing the teachings of Jesus. A wise per- that's the foundation. Both of these guys in the story are in church. They both hear the information They're listening to the same sermon. Both guys look the same from the outside. Both guys are building a house. Maybe even they have the same decor. I don't know. But the difference is the foundation. And the foundation isn't hearing the information. The foundation is practicing the teachings of Jesus. Information is not the issue. It's the application and the implications of the information. I was listening to um, a podcast this last week and they were uh, saying something about that we live at a time when there is more information than ever. You have access this minute to more information. In fact, you might be listening to me, you might be scrolling through your phone and you might have the TV on in the background. (laughs) There's information, we get bombarded. In fact, this podcast said we just get bombarded with it and, and it went on to say how much information we get bombarded with. We're overwhelmed with it, which causes us to be used to not acting on the information that we're bombarded with. It almost conditions us. That's what the podcast said. I think it's interesting. I think it's what Jesus is talking about. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Now listen, I think he's saying it's not enough to hear sermons. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. It's not enough to go to Bible studies. It's not enough to take notes, say amen, wave your hand, shake your head in agreement, even be inspired by it. It's not enough to memorize it, quote it, post it, stick it to your car on your bumper. That's what he's saying. It's not enough. He's saying, here is the key to a wise foundation. It's putting it into practice. And the key to putting it into practice is to practice doing it. That's the key. He's saying, Dan, help me understand that. Well, uh, I heard a guy use this illustration and, and I thought, man, that's my life. Uh, I go to the dentist. Raise your hand, you go to the dentist. You go to the dentist? Yeah, you ought to go to the dentist, right? Uh, my dentist is watching this right now. And I know I'm due for a visit, right? You need to go to the dentist. I go to the dentist, right? Every time I go to the dentist, 
Uh, maybe your dentist does the same thing. They clean your teeth, check your teeth, and then they tell you the importance of what? Well, brushing, yes, but flossing, <laughs> right? Every time I go, they're like, it's important to floss, right? And my dentist and the, the hygienist and all that, they have this big spiel they give. And I always, I'm like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And they give me the facts. And one time my dentist said, when you don't floss, it's like having a, a mouthful of unwashed dishes in there. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of gross. And he's like, he inspired me. And I'm like, oh, that's right. I felt convicted. I mean, he even says, here, I'm going to give you some floss. And you ought to go do this. And I'm like, I'm going to floss every day. And so on and so forth. And so I leave there inspired. I shake my head. I'm like, that's right. I'm convicted. That's very much what I need to do. And then I come home and there is all the floss that he's given me over the last several years that I have yet to use. I'm not a flosser. Don't judge me. But I just don't use it. Right? I think he says things that are so inspiring to me. I think that, that it makes sense to me. I shake my head when he's talking. I'm like, wow, I really should do that. I come home, I take the floss. He gives me free floss and I put it in the basket and have yet to use it. You see, I think Jesus is saying this. He's like, he just preached a sermon. He says, don't worry. And you can go and hear the sermon. He says, don't worry. And like, oh, I shouldn't worry. And that sounds inspiring. Great. I think I just won't worry, right? It doesn't work that way. Unless somehow I practice putting it into practice. When things come up that begin to swell up anxiety inside of me. Uh, Jesus says things like, love your enemy. I'm like, well, that sounds great. I think I love my enemy. That sounds inspiring. The preacher really preached it. Jesus really said it. I'm going to go love my enemy. And that sounds great until you come face to face with your enemy. And Jesus says things like, pray for your worst antagonist. And I'm just going to tell you something. That is not natural to me. That will not happen unless I practice putting it into practice. And Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to need some practice on that one. <laughs> and I think that's what he's saying. You see, here's what I believe. The process of dying to me is practicing the life and teachings of Jesus in me. Write that down somewhere. There's no slide for it, but the practice or the process of dying to me so that he can live in me is for me not to, to give in to my natural instincts. My natural instinct is if you slap my right cheek, I'm gonna hit your right and left cheek. That's my natural instinct, Right? This doesn't happen naturally until I die to me so that Jesus can come alive. Less of me, more of him. That's what he's saying. Why does Jesus say this? Why the foundation? Why, why? Why is that important? There's a storm of brewing. That's what he says. Look at what he says. Go back to Matthew 7. He says, well, this guy built and the rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against the house. It didn't fall. Why? It had a foundation on the rock. But then he says it's not everybody who comes to church, not everybody who listens to the podcast, not everybody who reads their Bible, not everybody who says they're a Christian, not everybody who goes to church, not everybody who hears these words of mine puts them into practice. And they're like really, really, really information-laden foolish men. That's what he says. And they build their house on sand, not a rock. The rain comes down, streams rose, wind blows, beats against the house. It fell with a great crash. The word he used like this mega crash, like life crashes. 
you, you know this to be true. When a hurricane is upon me, I don't really care about the decor of my house. When they tell me a tornado's coming, I'm not saying, hey, you know, does the, uh, does, does the paint on the walls match the furniture? Like, I'm not saying things like, like, what am I concerned about when a tornado's coming, when a hurricane's coming? What am I concerned about? I'm concerned about what? I'm concerned about the foundation. Is the house going to what? Stand. Uh, I had a, uh, we moved here from Indiana. We had a, a little 900 square foot home in Indiana. It was the only home we could afford. It's the first home that my wife and I uh, bought together. And uh, so there were some problems with it. We knew that. One of the problems was the foundation was a little bit wiggly, right? Uh, when we moved here, we moved here. Uh, I had trouble selling the house, you know, for a while. The, the market wasn't that great. So for five years, I was a landlord, right? And I'll never forget the day I was actually teaching at a, uh, as a kid's camp up in Beulah Beach, right? I was teaching at this kid's camp, and I got the phone call that in Columbia City, they had had this big storm, rain, wind, all of that. And I remember on the other side, the guy saying, I don't know how to tell you this, but the entire sidewall of your foundation blew in last night. <laughs> That's like... That's not the news. Like, tell me some shingles flew off, right? Like, like tell me the, a tree, went, but, but the entire foundation of what my house was standing on blew in. You see, I had problems. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Storms in the Bible, they just refer to hard times difficulties, negative circumstances, inconveniences. It's getting the diagnosis you didn't expect. It's when people make life really hard. Jesus in the Bible. This, if you've never read the Bible, can I tell you this? This, this to me draws me to the scriptures. Jesus is brutally honest with us about life. He says it's gonna be hard. That life's gonna throw us curveballs. People are gonna make life difficult. There's gonna be circumstances that are inconvenient and unplanned for. Nobody wakes up and plans for a bad day. But rain does come. Floods do rise. Winds do blow. I heard this this week. When you expect life to be easy and it's not, it's way harder. I'm gonna say it again. When you go through life and you expect it to be easy and it's not, then it's way harder. Jesus and that's going to have some storms. That's why the foundation is so important because, write this down somewhere, hard times will reveal the foundation of my life. Difficulty reveals what it is you're building your life on. His way doesn't lead us out of the storm, but it leads us through the storm. It gets us through the storm. The storms of our personal life, and can I just say this, in our collective national life, have a way of revealing the foundation of our life. When the hardship comes, when the diagnosis is revealed, when the death of the dream happens, when the relationship challenge erupts, when, when our nation goes through a polarizing crisis, when the stock market crashes, you fill in the blanks. That's when the rain falls. That's when the winds pick up. That's when the storms have a way of revealing the foundation. Are you tracking with me? I, I, I wrote it down this way in my, my notes. The financial storm has a way of revealing whether our foundation is on greed in this sense of financial security or on trusting God. Matthew 5 through 7. The political winds reveal whether my foundation is on trusting the one who's in the White House, the Senate House, 
or the, the house of representatives or the governor's house or the one on the throne in heaven. The physical flood reveals a foundation of an identity either built on, on the foundation of youthfulness and beauty and sex appeal or one built on the truth of what God has to say about me. The cultural crisis reveals a foundation either built on Christ or a foundation built on a consumeristic spirituality disguised as Christianity. I think that's the point. In the short run, don't miss this, guys. In the short run, you can't tell the difference between these two guys. Before the storm hits, you don't know the difference. These two guys look the same. They have a nice life, nice cars, go to church. They maybe go to a Bible study. They're probably moral, good people, nice family. But the moment of truth comes when the storm hits, and the same is true with you, and the same is true with me, and the same is true with us. Guys, I, it's why one of the things that pains me is why people go to church for years, for years, go to Bible studies all the time, and yet they're still wrecked with anxiety. They're still destroyed by their anger and they're beaten down by bitterness. Why is that? Because knowing, knowing is not enough. That's what Jesus is saying. Both these guys knew the information. One guy drew implication and application and put it into practice. Jesus is preaching this sermon. Now, something's interesting, and then I need to go on back. But Jesus, while well, he's preaching this sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, this is just interesting to me. He's always saying you. Go back and circle when he says you. But what you might not know, uh, and you, you, can, you should apply this individually, but what you may not know is that when he says you, when you read you in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, it was originally written in Greek. And the you that he uses is a plural you. Like in our English language, we kind of say you. Most, like we don't really have plural, depending on what part of the country you're from, right? Uh, down south they do, right? How do they say you, you uh, plural? They say what? Just go ahead and say it out loud, right? Y'all. Uh, in Pennsylvania, that's, we don't say y'all, but we do have a plural you. We say yens, right? Say, try that. Say it out loud. Yens, right? Now you got some mountain in you, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He said, yens. <laughs> when, you, when you read you, just write yens <laughs> or y'all. That's what he's saying. The idea of building a house, the, the, I won't spend much time on this, but it's, it's interesting to me, can be a picture of building one's individual life. Yes, apply it that way. But it, it can be, and it's plural, a picture of a group or a community or a ministry. Like the household of faith, the household of Israel. You're saying, Dan, what are you getting at? I think Jesus is saying this. He's saying storms will reveal your foundation individually, but don't miss this. Storms in our country will reveal Yen's guys, the church's foundation collectively. Go ahead and let that sink in. We got to. We have to. He, he's saying storms in our country and our world will reveal Yen's guys' foundation collectively. And if that foundation is not built on practicing the teachings of Jesus, it will. What will? The church will fall with a great crash. I think he's saying if that church is built on man's traditions instead of the truth of Jesus, it will crash. 
I think he's saying if that church is built on consumeristic Christianity instead of generous, give it away, heart of worship Christianity, it will crash. I think he's saying if that church is built on an Americanized gospel instead of the gospel lived and taught by a first century rabbi who was the very embodiment of wisdom, it will crash. I think he's saying if that church is built on anger and demanding its rights instead of mercy and grace, it will crash. I think he's saying if that church is built on convenience and preference instead of sacrifice and preferring others, it will crash. I think that's what he's saying. Whew. Take a deep breath, right? It's the foundation of wisdom. It doesn't sound that unsimilar to what James is saying. Remember what James says? He says, I think he's just kind of saying somewhat what his brother's saying. He says, such wisdom, foolish wisdom, earthly wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but it's earthly and spiritual. And where you have that, you have disorder and every evil practice. You have a house waiting to crash. But wisdom from above is pure, peace-loving, considered, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Remember, James is Jesus' half-brother. And I don't know, maybe he's filling out the metaphor, but maybe Jesus was more into construction and maybe James was more had the green thumb. I don't know, right? More into gardening. But I think it's interesting that Jesus was talking about a foundation. And look at what James says. This is how he ends his talk on wisdom. And we got, I, I want to show you something. This is rich. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. <laughs> Verse 18, that's how he ends it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fruit of wisdom. That's what he's talking about. Now, now I, I need you to hang with me for just a few minutes. Uh, what, what is the fruit of a wise life? We talk about the foundation. Now, what's the fruit? In the Greek language, this sentence is, can be tough to translate, right? You can forget that. But the essence he's saying is that the fruit of wisdom will produce the seeds that, when planted, will produce a harvest of righteousness. That's what he's saying. That, that when the fruit of wisdom shows up in my life, in that fruit, you know how in fruit there's seeds to plant so that other will grow? That's the fruit will produce the seeds that when planted in peace will produce the harvest of righteousness. Uh, righteousness seems fairly important to Jesus. Uh, if you have your finger back in, in that Sermon on the Mount, you don't need to turn there. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said a lot about righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 6, he said, happy are those who hunger for it. And then a few verses later, he says, happy are those who are persecuted because of it. Uh, he says in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, which they were seen as the most righteous, moral, upright. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on to say in verse 1, chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others simply to be seen by them. And then a little later he says, I want you to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Righteousness seems to be important, but what I'm interested in is he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they made it, they made it their devotion of their life to keep every single little iota of the law. How in the world do I do that? Here's the point. Here's the point. I want you to write it down this way. I cannot produce the fruit of righteousness in me 
Like the fruit will never produce in me unless his righteousness has been planted in me. I, I want you to hear, I, I, I'm desperate for this to make sense to you. I'm desperate for this to make sense to you. I don't know who all I'm talking to. Whether you've been churched all your life or this is your first time ever hearing a guy talk about the Bible. To be righteous is to be declared right and the problem is none of us are all right. And if I'm not all right, I'm not right. (laughs) And the problem is because I'm not all right, I can't paste rightness onto my life. That's not how it works. Just pasting righteousness onto my life. This righteousness that he's talking about has to be produced in my life and I can't produce what hasn't been planted. That's why James said this in James 1, 21. He says, get rid of moral filth, evil, and humbly, look what he says, accept the word planted in you which can save you. Put in parentheses, declare you righteous. That's the gospel, that in Christ we can be declared righteous. God wants us to reap a harvest of righteousness in us. He wants to reap a harvest of righteousness in you. This is what he wants. And the only way that can happen is not for you to try harder, not so that you paste a little righteousness into your life. The only way was for wisdom personified in the person of Jesus to come and do for me and to do for you what I can't do for myself. It's the only way it can happen. You see, he was wisdom personified. He was pure. In Christ, I see the God who's devoted to me to the point where he came and died for me. He was peace-loving. In Christ, I see the God that I'm at war with. I'm at war with. He's humbly offering himself in order to make peace possible with him. I see the God who's considerate. In Christ, I see the God that I can't get to making his way to me. I have a God who walked in my shoes. Why? So he could help me and rescue me. He's submissive. He is wisdom personified. In Christ, I see God submitting himself, giving up his rights to meet my need. In Christ, I see wisdom personified. He's full of mercy and good fruit. And in Christ, I see a God who took what I deserved, what you deserved, so that he could offer what We don't. He is full of mercy and kindness and he offers grace. In Christ, I see wisdom personified. He is impartial and sincere. And in Christ, I see a God who showed up. He was full of grace and truth. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous could be declared righteous, not because they deserve, but because he did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. You see, that righteousness can only happen when you say yes to the word planted that can save you. That's the gospel. Saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his love, yes to his invitation, yes. Because the minute you say yes to Jesus, this great exchange takes place where you give your sin to him. That doesn't seem fair, does it? That's grace, that's mercy. And he gives to you his righteousness. It's the only way it happens. You see, you'll never produce the fruit of righteousness till his righteousness is planted in you. Some of you have been 
in church all your life and you're trying to produce righteousness, but his righteousness never been planted. You're trying to produce a righteousness of your own effort, pasting it onto your life. And you'll never produce the righteousness he's looking for that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law till you accept the righteousness Christ extends to you by simply saying yes to what he did for you. You see, when I know that, then I think what really James is getting at is this. And I want you to write it down. I'll flesh it out and then we're done. You and I, we, I used plural we, won't grow what Jesus grows unless we plant how Jesus planted. (laughs) Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. James says, I want you to reap a harvest of righteousness. How do we do that? Like if I'm a follower of Christ and I've said yes to Jesus, then how do I do that? How do I live? Well, James tells us how not to live. Look what he says in James 1. He says, brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. But there's a lot of things making me angry. Why? Because your anger does not produce, there it is, righteousness that God desires you can't grow what Jesus grows unless you plant how Jesus plants that's why James says this peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness the idea of peace here can and does even carry the idea of national tranquility with it did you know that it's interesting to me that we as followers of Jesus plant peace in the chaos. Can I just challenge you this way? You will never grow what Jesus grows unless you plant how Jesus plants. You'll never grow what he grows if you only declare a devotion to God that's not demonstrated. You'll never grow what Jesus grows if you're always stirring up drama and picking a fight, if you need to make a point more than you need to make a difference. You'll never grow what Jesus grows if, if we never put ourselves in other people's shoes, if we never give them the benefit of the doubt, if, if we need our preference to be the priority over preferring others. You will never grow what Jesus is growing if you're not willing to surrender your constant fight for your rights instead of paying attention to people's needs. You'll never grow what Jesus grows if you're always fighting authority, questioning decisions, verbally sparring. You will never grow what Jesus grows if you're not willing to serve others and forgive others. You'll never grow what Jesus grows if you're demanding that morality be legislated instead of the fruit of Jesus showing up in our relationships. You'll never grow. You'll never grow what Jesus is growing if you ignore the truth or you ignore loving others. You see, James asked a question. Who's wise? Who's understanding among you? There's a foundation of wisdom that the storm reveals. What is the storm revealing about the foundation of your life? And then there's this fruit of wisdom. 
that grows in me when the righteousness of Jesus is planted in me, it grows. This fruit of wisdom that produces the seeds that we get to plant peacefully in a chaotic world so that we can grow what Jesus grows by planting our lives the way he planted his life. So God, would you help us do that? Because that ain't natural and we need more Jesus, less of us. Some of my friends watching this have never said yes to Jesus the first time and I pray right now this moment in their living room, in their car, uh, in their den, wherever they're watching this, that they would take a minute and say, God, I believe you love me, that Jesus died for me and my sin and I wanna say yes to Jesus exchanging my sin for his rightness and righteousness. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, call us. But God, for a whole bunch of us who've said yes to Jesus, I pray, God, that you would help us to pay attention to what the storm of the season has revealed in the foundation of our life. And God, that we would plant as Jesus planted so that we might grow what Jesus grew. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.